Siegel has been on and off of our top paid biopharma CEO roster over the past couple of years. This year is almost undoubtedly going to be his last appearance. That's because he had a really damning domestic abuse arrest. That's Fraser Kansteiner, a staff writer here at Fierce Life Sciences. Later, we'll hear more from him about our special report on the 15 highest paid biopharma CEOs of 2021. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today's Friday, July 15th, but here at Fierce, we're already thinking ahead to the upcoming weeks because our next two episodes are going to be unique. First, we'll dive deep into the important topics of industry layoffs and generics. And then the following week, we're devoting an entire podcast to our next-gen virtual event. You won't want to miss that one. We've got an amazing lineup of panelists. But for this week, stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. In March, when President Biden announced the U.S. would set up COVID test-to-treat sites, it seemed like a great idea. Walk into a clinic, get tested, and walk out with a pack of free COVID pills. What's not to like? Well, it wasn't that easy. Here's Kevin Dunleavy with more. The FDA will now allow pharmacists, not just doctors, to prescribe Pfizer's COVID pill, Paxlovid. But not everyone is happy with the change. The American Medical Association says that doctors are the only ones who should be prescribing the pills. For patients on other medications, there is the possibility of dangerous drug interactions with Paxlovid. Also unhappy is drug company Merck, which has a COVID pill of its own called Legevrio. Pfizer's antiviral pills have a 90% efficacy, keeping at risk people with COVID alive and out of the hospital. Merck's Legevrio has much lower efficacy, only 30%. But in some countries, doctors have concluded that it is a safer option. In Japan, for instance, Merck's pills are outselling Pfizer's 10 to 1. Despite these concerns, this new measure should help get the drug to more people who need it, since Paxlovid must be taken within five days of the onset of symptoms. More than 100 women in biotech have signed a letter condemning the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. The women say this is a call to action, and they will no longer be silent. Here's Annalie Armstrong. Biotech is not exactly an industry that can directly impact abortion care. But more than 100 women in biotech say the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade is a call to action. They say it's time for them in the industry to address the health of women, underrepresented minorities, and LGBTQIA communities more broadly, including addressing many of the equality issues that plague the industry. I talked to several women who signed on to the letter, forcefully decrying the Supreme Court's June decision. The letter read, We will not stand by silently. Our voices rise. We strongly dissent. The letter sprang from the Biotech Sisterhood, a group of women executives who met earlier this year to network and support the next generation of leaders. They say that now is the time to become more active in using their positions of leadership to lobby for better reproductive health. The women say that companies should bring forward better contraceptive choices and help educate people on their reproductive options. Companies can also push back when women are denied care for certain reasons, like when they may be taking medications that have the side effect of a possible miscarriage. The group doesn't know exactly what comes next after the letter, but they promised they aren't going anywhere. A former VP from Mazur Robotics and two of his associates face charges from the Securities and Exchange Commission, 
Allegedly, they launched an insider trading scheme ahead of Medtronic's 2018 acquisition of Mazor. Andrea Park has more. The SEC has charged a former Mazor Robotics executive with illegal insider trading. It all went down in 2018 when Medtronic announced it was acquiring Mazor. The deal totaled $1.64 billion, and it gave Medtronic all of Mazor's robot-assisted spinal surgery tech. Now, four years later, the SEC has filed charges against Doran Tavlin, Mazor's former VP of Business Development, and two of his associates. According to the agency, ahead of the acquisition deal, the trio launched an illegal insider trading scheme that earned them more than $500,000 in profits. The SEC says that Tavlin tipped off one of his friends about the planned buyout a month before it was made public. He allegedly told the friend to quickly buy up Mazor's stock and invest some money on his own behalf. The friend did just that, according to the SEC, and also passed on the tip to another friend. They each raked in around $250,000 from the alleged deal. The SEC also claims that several months after the acquisition, Tavlin went back to his friend to ask for payment for the insider tip and received $25,000. The SEC is seeking permanent injunctions against the trio. It's also asking them to pay back all funds they earned from the alleged scheme, plus a civil penalty fee. Finally, it's hoping to prohibit Tavlin from ever again holding an officer or director position at a company that reports to the SEC. Roche currently holds the leading hemophilia treatment. But look out, here comes Nova Nordisk with two challengers of its own. James Waldron has the story. When it comes to hemophilia, Novo Nordisk has stepped up its game. This week, at a conference in London, the company announced newly published data from studies of two different haemophilia therapies it has in the works. First came the publication of phase three clinical data for Novo Nordisk's Concizumab to treat people with both haemophilia A and haemophilia B with inhibitors. The company's rare diseases team said the study results exceeded their wildest dreams. It showed an 86% reduction in treated spontaneous and traumatic bleeds. The team clearly feels confident as they told me that they've already submitted Concizumab to the FDA for approval, with the hope of a decision coming next year. Novel Nordisk also released early-stage data from another drug called MyMate, which offers a wider variety of dosing options than Concizumab. The results showed the drug was safe and set up the company to push the therapy into a Phase 3 trial by the end of the year. When I spoke with Novel Nordisk's rare diseases team, they made no secret of the fact that they are gearing up to take on Roche, whose blockbuster drug Hemlibra dominates the market. Hemlibra brought in a massive $3 billion in worldwide sales last year, which gives a sense of the prize at stake. We've been speculating for weeks about a potential Merck acquisition of Seijin, but now the two companies are reportedly nearing a deal that could be the largest biopharma deal since 2020. Here to discuss the numbers are Eric Saganowski and Angus Liu. Hey, Angus. Soon we could see the largest biopharma acquisition in three years. That is if a report from the Wall Street Journal pans out. So what can you tell me about this potential deal? Yeah, I think our listeners should already be familiar with this story by now. Um, This started uh, a few weeks ago uh, from a Wall Street Journal report that uh, Merck is uh, circling uh, Siagen for an acquisition. So now last week, the Wall Street Journal reported an update saying that Merck was in advanced talks to buy Siagen for about $40 billion or more. 
uh, and the two companies expect to reach a deal uh, by Merck's second quarter earnings call on July the 28th. Uh, interestingly, CJ later announced that it will also hold its own second quarter call on the same day, uh, though in the afternoon. Okay, so can you give us some perspective? Where does $40 billion sit at among recent biopharma deals? Right. If $40 billion is the final sticker, then the acquisition would be the largest pharma transaction in three years, uh, just narrowly surpassing AstraZeneca's $39 billion acquisition of Axion, which was announced in December 2020. Okay. And what was the larger deal that happened before the Alexion deal? Yeah, that would be AbbVie and Allergen's $63 billion merger. The deal was announced uh, in June 2019 and closed a year later in 2020. Interesting. So that seems like a fairly long amount of time for a deal that size in the pharma world. The pandemic really must have slowed down deal making. Yeah, not just COVID. I mean, the new uh, U.S. Federal Trade Commission has also been breathing down biopharma's neck since early 2021. Yeah, I remember covering that announcement. Um, can you give an update on that process? Yeah, I think back in March, that was uh, last year uh, in 2021, uh, the FTC's pressure uh, isn't exactly at that time, it wasn't exactly in its full swing yet. Um, the current FTC chair, uh, Lena Khan, only sworn in mid-June last year. So uh, the FTC is basically... Uh, renewing its interest in large biopharmaceutical deals. And there was this high-profile warning that they're setting up a task force with international antitrust regulators to examine closer uh, large biopharma transactions. And of course, um, besides FTC, other factors like COVID were in play as well in terms of slower uh, biopharma transactions. But Given the FTC's announcement the last year uh, that they are going to re-review the process of large biopharma transactions, companies have largely been observing on the sidelines trying to figure out where exactly the FTC is drawing the new line in the sand. Okay, and what are some of the things that are they looking at, and when could this start to come into play? Yeah, I think... This started years ago, uh, even before the current uh, FTC uh, started business. Uh, I think Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, who has been an FTC commissioner since 2018, she appears to be the face of this renewed interest in scrutinizing large from M&As. I mean, during her tenure, Slaughter has argued against uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb's $74 billion merger with Celgene as well as the FBI allergen deal. Um, I think she has argued on several occasions that the FTA, FTC shouldn't just consider product overlaps during its review of pharma m and uh, I, I think the latest she reiterated that opinion was just a few weeks ago at a recent workshop focused on pharma m and uh, It obviously has been the FTC's, FTC's practice for a long time. I mean, just reviewing if there's any products that uh, between the two companies in mer- involved in the merger, if there are any product overlaps between them. Uh, but Slaughter and uh, the Democratic leadership at the FTC now suggest uh, this has to change, that it has to look broader beyond those products. I think following that line of argument, the FTC is, is 
appear to be pondering whether they should include past anti-competition behaviors into consideration of large transactions. I mean, these practices include paper delay deals, patent evergreening, product hopping, uh, among others. And the FTC has also expressed concerns about further consolidation of large pharma companies like the one be- between uh, Bristol-Myers and Celgene. The, the FTC is, feels like that kind of uh, combination between large firms is one, at least one of the reasons be- behind rising drug prices because large pharma companies, uh, when they combine, they tend to have more power in pricing negotiations. It seems like a pretty broad purview they're taking in pharma reviews. So what could this mean for Merck and CGen? Right. In, in my opinion, the transaction could draw some extra attention. I mean, Merck and CGen are both developing cancer drugs. I mean, that's why Merck is, re, is reportedly interested in CGen in the first place, that uh, the Seattle company's antibody drug conjugate uh, holds great potential for developing new cancer therapies. I mean, we also hear uh, SVB securities analysts arguing that the FTC's decision will eventually come down to whether the agency views the drugs uh, between Merck and between Seagen, whether they view the drugs as potential rivals or potential combinations that could be paired with each other. And uh, separately, in an interview with CNBC, Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb said, and I quote, the question is, what are they going to force the two companies to divest to get this deal done? End of quote. Uh, To me, these views have not exactly jumped out of the old FTC's thinking, which was, uh, like like I said, which was focused on product uh, overlaps between products. But the new FTC has already indicated, like I said, it has already indicated and will look beyond that. To me, the question for Merck and Sijin is, is the FTC comfortable allowing Merck additional power in oncology treatment? I mean, the company already sells the world's best-selling cancer product, Keytruda, and biotech companies are already lining up their new therapies to be paired with Keytruda. And although there are many other PD-1, pd one inhibitors out there, Merck has clearly made Keytruda the therapy of choice for many U.S. physicians in several key indications. So any additional drugs from Seagen could uh, further consolidate Merck's leadership in cancer in oncology. And this will in return, give the company additional say in determining pricing. And I, th- I think that is going to raise some eyebrows at the FTC. Those are all great points. I, I'm interested to see, one, whether Merck attempts to buy CGen, and two, if that happens, how the FTC responds. Thanks, Angus. Every year, Fierce puts together a special report ranking the highest-paid biopharma CEOs of the year, And this year is no different, except for the fact that several high-profile CEOs left their role, signifying bigger problems in the company. Here to discuss the details are Fraser Kansteiner and Eric Saganowski. Hey, Fraser. Today we're talking about our annual CEO pay report for pharmaceutical companies. We do this report in the late spring or early summer, depending on when the proxy reports get filed by each of these companies. 
Um, we won't go through all 15 companies on the list, but there are some interesting trends to highlight. For starters, there are four CEOs who have left that role since the report. Um, the list was bookended by two such CEOs, uh, Johnson & Johnson's Alex Gorski at number one and Merck's Kenneth Frazier at number 15. Um, those were normal course of the business um, changes of leadership, but other transfers pointed to issues with the companies. Can you talk about those? Yeah, definitely. Take Biogen's Michel uh, Vunatsos, for example. He was number 13 on our 2021 pay rankings, uh, and he spent a lot of last year going up to bat for uh, the company's controversial Alzheimer's disease drug, Adjahome. Uh, unfortunately, those those efforts didn't really do much to to salvage the Mets launch, uh, you know, culminating in some pretty significant cost cutting measures, uh, as well as a reduction of Agilehelm's commercial team, and then of course, uh, Vunatsos's pending departure. Um, now, despite those difficulties, uh, Vunatsos's pay package didn't really reflect those uh, Agilehelm troubles. Um, so in 2021, he took home 17.69 million. That's down just 5% from the roughly 18.66 million he earned in 2020. And one thing we'll, we'll highlight for, for listeners is that um, these, this isn't all cash payment. A, lot, a big portion of these pay packages comes in stock equity awards. Um, another component comes from cash incentive awards, depending on how the company did that year. So it's not all cash payment. Uh, another CEO with an unplanned exit was Seagen's Clay Seagull. What happened with him? Seagull has been on and off of our top paid biopharma CEO roster over the past couple of years. Uh, this this year is almost undoubtedly going to be his last appearance. That's because he had a really damning domestic abuse arrest. Um, and in May, he resigned from the company as CEO uh, and, and chairman. Um now, you know, I guess just sort of in terms of the company, 2021 was actually a pretty good year for Seijin, and that was reflected in, in Siegel's compensation, which had come out prior to his uh, fall from grace. Um, but the former helmsman saw his pay package swell nearly 14% to $18.91 million last year. I see. And Burke's CEO, Ken Fraser's exit was a little bit more planned along the line of what we'd expect. Um, he, after a decade as Merck CEO, he stepped aside last June, but he still made it onto the list again. Yeah, yeah. He just barely snuck on for uh, his pay over the last six months of his career. So um, he handed things over to Robert Davis, Merck's former chief financial officer, uh, last July. Uh, for Fraser's last six months on the job as CEO, he took home $15.2 million. Uh, for comparison, Robert Davis uh, last year took home $13.7 million for his leadership in the back half of the year. Frazier isn't you know, fully leaving the Merck fold just yet. He actually is going to stick around as executive chairman for an undecided stretch of time. Uh, if we just look back a little bit as well at some of uh, Frazier's previous compensation, um, he made $22.1 million in 2020. That was his last full year on the job as CEO. Uh, in 2019, he made 27.6 million, and that earned him the uh, bronze on our CEO pay rankings that year. Um, and you know, interestingly, Merck actually was so enthusiastic about Fraser's leadership that at one point it had waived the the maximum age uh, to keep Fraser on the job longer. That had been 65. However, less than a year after it made that change, Merck revealed that Fraser would be retiring on uh, June 30th of 2021. And, and yeah, so he had been there for quite a while. He actually joined the company way back in 92. 
Yeah, and in a similar move, Johnson & Johnson's Alex Gorski did the same thing. He went from CEO to executive chairman. So it was a big, big year of leadership transition in the pharma world. Exactly. And, and that one, I think, was a little bit more surprising, um, you know, wasn't linked to just a retirement or something like that. Um, but yeah, as, as you know, the longtime CEO of one of the world's biggest healthcare conglomerates, uh, Alex Gorski has routinely made appearances on our, on our rankings of the best paid CEOs. Now, uh, in January, really early this year, he handed the reins over to uh, Joaquin Duado, who is the former vice chairman of the executive committee at J&J. Uh, so during his last year at the drug maker, uh, Gorski earned $26.74 million in total compensation. That was down 9.6 from 2020, but again, he still earned the top spot on our rankings for the year. And also just to put that in perspective, Gorski's pay last year was 297 times the compensation of the average J&J employee. Uh, and, and like you mentioned, going forward, Gorski is, is going to be sticking around as J&J's executive chairman. Now, you know, even though he, he often is one of the most handsomely rewarded CEOs, or, or was, now that he is um, moving over to the role of executive chairman, Gorski's run as CEO wasn't without controversy. You know, two prominent examples would be the, the many lawsuits that J&J has faced over its marketing of talc powders, as well as uh, opioid painkillers. Interestingly enough, uh, after speaking with shareholders, J&J's compensation committee last year opted to include the impact of litigation charges going forward in management compensation. Interesting. Well, with with Alex Gorski at the top, I guess it didn't come as much of a surprise that Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla came in second, considering how many headlines they've been making the last couple of years. Yeah, uh, Pfizer's kind of unstoppable ascent, courtesy of its BioNTech-partnered COVID shot, uh, definitely did pour over into um, Albert Borla's compensation. So uh, heading into 2021, Pfizer's board uh, increased the maximum potential annual cash bonus that an executive could get. Uh, they, they raised it to 250% from a target of 200%. And they said they were doing this to strengthen alignment between pay and performance and also provide greater ability to differentiate pay based on performance. Uh, so Borla, for his part, got the maximum amount the first year the adjustment became effective. And, you know, actually, according to the board, uh, the CEO should have taken home even more if it weren't for that funding cap. Um, now, just in terms of kind of some R&D progress Pfizer made last year, uh, you know, the board in, in a securities filing said that it had been a record-breaking year for the company. Uh, you know, they pointed to events like the FDA's uh, Konranati authorization for children between the ages of 5 and 15, uh, as well as the approval of... Well, Pfizer's not the only company busy with COVID research. Um, in this year's report, we saw the CEOs of Regeneron and Novavax not make the list. But others who are involved in COVID research were um, were included. Moderna's Stefan Bonsel last graced our list in 2018 and led the rankings that year thanks to Moderna's IPO. So what happened last year? Yeah, uh, 2021 was undoubtedly a transformational year for Moderna. You know, basically the company went from a research-oriented biotech to a commercial juggernaut. Uh, and that also catapulted uh, Stefan Bansell back into the ranks of the highest paid executives in the industry for 2021. Uh, now, last year was Bansell's um, 11th year at the company. He made $18.16 million which was a 41% increase over the $12.8 million he earned in 2020. Uh, so in 2020, that was the year Moderna scored a government grant of nearly $1 billion to develop a vaccine against COVID-19. In 2021, uh, 
Moderna reaped the benefits and reported sales of 17.7 billion. Uh, that you know amounted to a profit of 12.2 billion, which uh, the company then you know spread out among its executives. Now, Mansell's ranking uh, you know at number 13. It's not the highest placement on the list, but it also doesn't you know quite reveal the generational wealth that he has accumulated through sales of his holdings in Moderna. Uh, since the pandemic began, uh, Bansell has taken advantage of the, the you know, skyrocketing value of his company by selling portions of his stake in Moderna. And by March of this year, he'd made more than $408 million. Now, curiously, in May, after reports of his stock sales, Bansell revealed he was cashing out his original stock options in the company for charity, uh, saying he planned to donate around $355 million after paying $280 million in taxes. Um, and even before the pandemic, Mansell was one of the richest CEOs in the industry. Um, you mentioned uh, his placement on our list in 2018. That's the same year that Moderna generated its record-breaking IPO. Uh, and Mansell also earned the number one spot on our list with a, a pretty huge pay package of $58.6 million. Interesting. And moving over to some of the big pharma companies, AstraZeneca and Eli Lilly were also involved in COVID products of their own. And their CEO pay benefited from that. So what happened with them? Yeah, you know, in terms of AstraZeneca um, and the company's financial reporting last year, the the company pointed to a a collective pride among employees for the company's uh, contribution in the fight against COVID. Uh, You know, I guess more specifically, until October of last year, AstraZeneca had been supplying its uh, COVID vaccine, Vaxsevria, on a not-for-profit basis. And it said last year that with its partners, it had delivered uh, 2.5 billion doses of the vaccine. Um, you know, AstraZeneca itself reported pretty big revenue growth in 2021, thanks in large part to its Alexion acquisition, but but uh, Pascal Soriot actually took home a smaller pay package. So last year, he made 13.86 million pounds sterling. That's about 18.76 million US dollars. Uh, and that was down from 15.45 million pounds the previous year. Uh, again, you know, I guess looking beyond uh, COVID, uh, again, these companies really like to sort of highlight the R&D progress they've made when they're going over their CEO pay rationale. So AstraZeneca pointed to things like the approval of Seth Nello. Uh, it was trumpeting its Daiichi Sankyo partnered in Hertu, which had some really strong data in a head-to-head trial against Roach's Ketsila uh, in second-line Hertu-positive breast cancer. Uh, and then notably, Farsiga also got a key chronic kidney disease label expansion. Um, and, you know, something notable that AstraZeneca pointed out was it had originally been targeting um, a certain number of pipeline events and a certain number of regulatory movements in 2021. It actually uh, slightly exceeded its goal on both of those metrics. Um, looking over to Eli Lilly, uh, Lilly's CEO, David Ricks, pulled down $21.5 million in uh, total compensation last year, which was a 9.3% decline from 2020. Um, you know, so Lilly, in talking about the justification for Ricks' payment, noted that the company exceeded its revenue target and also made pretty significant pipeline advances. Eli Lilly's revenue last year came in at $28.3 billion, which was a 15% increase from 2020, and that was due in part to the contribution from the company's COVID-19 antibodies. Um, you know, looking beyond COVID antibodies at uh, sort of more general performance, Eli Lilly scored FDA approval for Virginio and certain people with high-risk early breast cancer. 
Uh, it also submitted its type 2 diabetes drug, trisepatide, to the FDA last year, and that med has subsequently won approval as Monjara. Uh, and Lily has also been talking about the progress uh, it's made in areas like Alzheimer's disease, uh, mantle cell lymphoma, ulcerative colitis, and, and more, just in terms of R&D advances in 2021. And uh, Ricks has been Lily's CEO since January of 2017. One thing we noticed right away is that there weren't any women CEOs on the list. So do you think that could change in the years to come? I, I think it definitely could. And, you know, two prominent examples that we could look at are GSK's Emma Walmsley and Vertex's uh, Reshma Kelwal-Ramani. So thinking about GSK, uh, the company gave uh, its CEO a 70% pay rise last year. So Walmsley took home 8.2 million pounds sterling, which is worth about 10.88 million US dollars. Uh, you know, that puts her pretty low in the rankings, but, you know, we do still see that, their, that her pay is slowly creeping up. And it's not all that far off from the compensation we've seen from CEOs at some other European pharmaceutical companies like uh, Novartis or, or Sanofi. Um, now, with Vertex, uh, their CEO, Reshma Kelwal-Ramani, came just short of making it onto our list this year. So in 2021, she took home $15.19 million. Uh, that would have landed her the number 16 spot on our list, right beneath Merck's departed CEO, Ken Frazier. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer, Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's the bottom line from The Top Line.